be seated. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word to the book and turn to the book of Joel. Joel is in the Minor Prophets. They are called that not because they're somehow less important, but because they are much smaller than the Major Prophets. As I said last time, if you don't know where that's at, you have an index in your Bible or just flip it open in the middle. You'll probably hit Isaiah and start turning towards the back. About five or six books, you'll hit Joel. This morning, after looking at the past five weeks, the five books of wisdom writings in the Old Testament, we now want to again return to looking at the Bible's larger storyline. We previously looked at all the historical books through 2 Kings, which means that we saw uh, God coming down and giving His uh, covenantal promises to Abraham through Abraham, uh, creating a people for Himself in Israel, seeing Him redeem them out of slavery and bondage to Egypt, and then making a covenant with them, seeing them rise as a great nation, uh, struggling under judges, but then raising to prominence and to holiness under King David, and then quickly under his son Solomon then uh, uh, falling down back into sin. In fact, persisting in it so much that eventually the kingdom of Israel split into two nations, the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. And ultimately, as they continued to embrace idolatry and sin and not heed God's warnings, breaking the covenant that He had made with them, that both the north uh, uh, tribe first and the southern tribe second were cast off into exile out of God's land just as He promised would happen. Well, now we are jumping back into the Bible storyline. We are landing right in the middle of all of that. We're jumping in before the exile. In fact, we're coming into the storyline witnessing God's patience and His mercy as before judgment was to be brought upon them through this exile, God is sending them prophet after prophet after prophet with a word saying, repent and turn back away from your sin to me that you might avert this judgment that is coming. And today, as we now begin finishing out the Old Testament, looking at uh, the prophetic books as well as the last few uh, books of the writings, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra, and then ending uh, with a summary of all that we've seen with First and Second Chronicles, we begin with the prophet Joel this morning. Now, Joel is unique among the prophets because he doesn't tell us when he actually ministered to Israel. He doesn't tell us when his prophecy, his prophetic word came uh, and when he delivered that to the people of Israel. In fact, if you will read commentaries or your your study Bible, you will see that there is a, a gap of several hundred years by which people think Joel could have ministered. Now, it's for that reason that he kind of hangs out in the air uh, that we begin with him. But more importantly... The reason why we begin with the book of Joel is because the central themes of Joel, in fact, really the central theme, is one that runs through all the prophetic books. So it's one that we will see in different ways again and again and again, and that is the theme of repentance. The theme of repentance. The one thing we do know about Joel in terms of chronology and that it's, is that it's coming just after a devastating plague of locusts has ravaged the nation of Israel. Now, we may not 
get a lot of locusts around here. So unless you're from somewhere that a uh, farming community or something where that is a reality, you may not realize how devastating these things could be. Consider that in recent times, swarms of locusts have been seen as large as 2,000 square miles. I don't mean like, like one here and one there. I mean like one on top of each other for 2,000 square miles. Within that kind of swarm, there can be up to 120 million locusts per square mile. Some swarms, they have, as they have come over, people said they literally have blocked out the sun. It has appeared to be night they have come through. And what do locusts do? They eat everything. Everything. In 1960, a small horde of locusts attacked California. Over a 200,000 acre spread, the insects were said to cover over every inch of the land and in some cases stacked on top of each other. Those that experienced that said their fields were stripped bare as if they were floors inside a building. One agricultural official commented that what they don't eat, they cut off for entertainment. His point was there's nothing left. When the locusts come through, there is nothing left. Such is the threat that locusts still present today that there are satellites tasked with tracking locust storms. And when they see uh, their swarms, when they see these swarms beginning to, uh, to build up, sometimes even uh, along the coast and move inward, they will actually uh, signal uh, disaster teams that will go in with planes or with trucks and spray uh, powerful pesticides that will wipe out these locusts before they can take out uh, fields and bring devastation to countries. But there were no such age in Israel in Joel's day. There was no satellite technology. There was no pesticides. And in fact, the devastation that was brought about by this locust plague was so severe that Joel says there was nothing like it before. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in our days or in the days of your fathers? He says, we've never been ravaged like this from locusts. The devastation resulted in a famine so severe that even the regular drink and grain offerings could not be offered at the temple. Nothing was left. And so the question everyone was asking was, why did this happen to Israel? Where is God in all of this? What does this mean for us? And Joel was clear in his book. That though this devastation from locusts was bad, something far worse was coming for Israel. The locust plague in many ways was simply a warning that a great and terrible day of the Lord was coming. A day that would be for judgment of Israel as well as the nations because of their sin. Nevertheless, Joel says, repent. Repent. He says, repent and the Lord might spare you from the coming judgment. Repent and the Lord may turn his face towards you again with blessing. Despite the fact that Joel says judgment is imminent, he calls out to the people calling them to repent because that is what God calls them to do. And we come to chapter 2 in the scripture reading that we'll look at this morning as we seek to summarize the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, we want to begin reading in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your garments, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not 
turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Again, Joel was telling Israel that serious repentance can avert serious judgment. They are on the brink of destruction. It's pictured as if the army is at the door. And yet God says, even in this final hour, repent and return to me that my wrath may not come. What does it mean to return to God though? What does it look like to repent? That is what we want to see this morning. For even though we are not ancient Israel, even as God's people today, the church, we often succumb to the same sins that they did. We still allow ourselves to worship things other than God. We still put our trust in things other than God. And though God says he will never forsake his people, he may ultimately find us unusable for his kingdom work. Think about that for a minute. Think about the fact that one day you will stand before the Lord. Even as his people, you will stand before the Lord. And as they always picture in the old, the old films, the screens go up and he's going to ask you, you've been, you've been imputed with the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ, what did you do with that? How did you live for me? How did you serve me? And when your, your life is played out in high def, Blu-ray, or whatever amazing thing they're going to have in heaven, crystal clear, so it's not just our actions, but the very intentions of our heart are laid forth for everyone to see. Will the pronouncement ultimately be you've trusted in Christ and your sins are forgiven, but your life, you were useless for my kingdom work? Because you continue to dabble with idolatry and worshiping other things beside me. You remember Numbers chapter 13? The people of God stood on the edge of the promised land. They had been brought up from Egypt. They had been redeemed by the Lord through miraculous signs, things that would have made our eyes bug out of our heads. Hail coming down, Nile River turned to blood, sun goes out everywhere except where the people of Israel live, and then uh, the, the, the sea is part of it. They're walking across on dry land, not even mud. And now they come to the promised land that God said he has given to them and they send in spies to investigate. They said, this is your mission. Take possession of this promised land that God has given you as an act of his mercy and his grace. Take in, send in the spies to find out what it's going to be like. And they come back and they all, except for two, they all give negative reports. They say, the land is great. But there are people there that there's no way we're going to be able to take down. They're strong, they're mighty armies. They have fortified cities. They complain. They say, we're never going to be able to do this. And we read in Numbers 14 too, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That generation of Israelites did not trust God. They didn't love God. They didn't want the mission. Therefore, instead of entering the promised land like God intended, they were left in the wilderness for 40 years just wandering around in circles. 
40 years so that that generation could die off and the next generation could go and fulfill the mandate that God had in terms of their mission to take possession of the promised land by his power. Here's the reality of the situation. They were not cut off from being his people, but they were ultimately completely ineffective at living as his people. They were to be a kingdom and nation of priests shining forth the glory of Yahweh to the nations. And instead, what did they do? They wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Completely unproductive for God's plan. So what about us? Where are we today as God's people? Like Israel, have we forgotten our first love? Have we somewhere along the line stopped trusting God as much as we once did, stopped loving God as much as we should, stopped wanting the mission that he has given to us to take the gospel to the nations. Our sin will not cause God to reject us as his people, but it may mean we have to wander for 40 years until the next generation comes up and is able to do something great for God because they are vessels fit for his service. I don't know about you, but that's not stamp I want on my life. I don't want to get to heaven and him say, you were a wanderer. I want to stand before God and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. What do you want this morning? You know, Joel says that a day of judgment is coming, but here's the reality. The reality is that there's more than one day of judgment. And now this side of the cross, there is an ultimate final day of judgment that is coming. And just as the swarm of locusts coming, the devastation that was brought forth in the land of Israel was a warning sign to Judah, so also Jesus says all such things are a warning to all people. So think about the things we've just seen in the last couple of years. Think about what's now called our day of infamy in 9-11. Think about more recently the, the Philippine disaster. Are we supposed to look at them, make the same mistake that some of the people in Israel did when a tower fell on some people during Jesus' day? And they were saying, why were they so sinful that this happened to them? You know what Jesus' response was? Jesus says, there's nothing about them being sinful that caused this to happen. He says, do you think these were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this week? No, no. I tell you, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. What is he saying? He's saying every single time you see a disaster, it is a warning sign from God that this world is fallen and broken because of sin. And one day his wrath is going to be poured out upon sin. It's going to be utterly destroyed. The calling for us then is to repent and turn away from that destruction that is coming and find refuge in the grace and mercy of God that he has provided in Jesus Christ. So this morning, even though we see this disaster so many years ago in the life of God's people that called them to repentance, we ourselves today can not just look at that locust disaster way back then, but we can see our own tremors Paul calls it pains of childbirth as the new heaven and the new earth is trying to break hold of this reality through the power of God's spirit, wiping out this old creation that is damaged by sin. This morning, the call for us also is to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn towards God in faith. But what does that look like? 
what does that and what does it truly mean to repent? This is what the book of Joel is all about. And it shows us what genuine repentance looks like. It shows us at least three things that we want to see this morning from the verses that we read. <clears throat> First, we see that we are to repent with contrite hearts. We are to repent with contrite hearts. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. God says to his people, return to me with all your heart. He tells people return because why? Because they've drifted away in sin. In sin, their hearts have pursued other things, whether it was quickly or whether it was slowly, they have departed from God. And God is calling them to return. And he says, when you return, you need contrite hearts. That is to say, you need hearts that feel the weight of the sin that's there. You need to be sincerely broken before me because we have a relationship that you have broken Think about this for a minute. God says return with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. All of these things are outward signs of grief and repentance. And yet, very quickly, what does he say later? He says, don't do outward signs, isn't it? The very next line, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, now which is it, God? Which do you want? Well, he wants both, but he's cautioning you. Don't just do the externals without the internal. It's easy to rend our garments, right? It's easy to say, oh, I'm so sorry for my sin. my life has been made so miserable. And inside, what is it really? I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry of the consequences of my sin. Not, I'm sorry that I have offended a holy God. That I have more or less spiritually given him the finger and said, go take a hike. I'm going to live my life the way I want to. That's what we should be rending our hearts about. The reality of our offense before a holy and mighty God. And so what Joel is saying, what God is saying through him is line up those external expressions with the internal reality of your hearts. And the reality is for us today, we don't do that very well. We are masters at playing the game. I mean, you know, something similar, something something that I have observed in terms of outward expressions. You know, sometimes I go to churches where People raise their hands a lot. And let me just say from the beginning, there's nothing wrong with raising your hands. In fact, some of us, I think, need to get over our fear of man, what other people think, and display worship that actually shows that we we love the God that we're singing about, okay? So I'm not downing raising hands, okay? Just get that straight. Now, if you start barking like a dog around down the aisles, we'll have another conversation, okay? Uh, But but being in a church where, 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 you know, so several weeks... you would see people that every single time the chorus of the song would gear up, their hands would go up. Chorus would stop, hands would go down. Chorus starts, hands go up. Chorus ends, hands go down. Song after song after song. Now, I'm sorry, that seems a little bit too programmed to me. That says to me, I think this is what This is what people expect. I think this is what it means to sincerely worship the Lord. i got to raise my hands on cue. And what I want to ask them is, okay, if that's that's a genuine expression of worship, fine. But what's really in your heart? What's really in your heart? 
Are you just doing that because you think? You've, you've fooled yourself into thinking that means you're really worshiping God? Or it's because you close your eyes when you sing? Or is there really something going on inside that's motivating you, that's moving you outwardly to make these kinds of signs? One of the most passionate worshipers I've ever seen is a man that I, I have quoted several times. That's John Piper. And it was, it was obvious when he was raising his hands in worship at Southern Seminary, which I have to say didn't happen very often, that he meant it. From the expression of pure joy on his face, the raising of his hand was giving the homage and the worship that was due the king of the universe. My point is simply to say this. Have we faked ourselves out in believing that if we just go through the external signs, internally our hearts are right before God? Have we, have we got into playing this game that we want everybody else to think that our lives are right with God through the external signs when really our hearts are not right before God? This is the, this is the thing that Joel here is getting at. The Lord says, don't just go through the motions of repentance. Don't just say all the right words and maybe kneel at the front. And No, rend your hearts. Rend your hearts in brokenness before God. What he's asking for is sincerity and authenticity in our hearts before God. The other things aren't that bad. The fasting, the weeping in the morning. <coughs> fasting allows us time to ask ourselves the hard questions about life. How can I trim out the non-essentials? that I may more fully devote myself to God? How can I better offer my life as a living sacrifice? How can I get rid of pride and self-centeredness? And weeping and mourning are the true overflow, I think, of the repentant heart, grieving over lost opportunities, damaged relationships, resources wasted, sin indulged. The fasting, the weeping, those things are all fine as long as they're rising up out of a heart that is contrite and broken before God over sin. Rending your garments is not wrong, but rending your heart is more difficult. And God says, when you repent of your sins and come back to me, don't just go through the motions. Be serious about it. Mean it. Repent and return to me with a contrite heart. But he also says, when you repent, repent with humble faith. Repent with humble faith. Look at verse 13. Joel says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Joel here is quoting the very words the Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus 34. You'll remember there that the, the people of Israel had only been in covenant with God for 40 days. Remember, He's done all these miraculous signs. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's promised to be their God. and They've said, we'll be your people. We'll do whatever you ask. He's given them the Ten Commandments, and it lasts 40 days, and they basically break all of them. Moses has been going up on the mountain getting the rest of the law. People say, he's taking too long. He's probably dead. We need to uh, get some new gods, and let's go back to Egypt because we might die out here. 40 days is only as long as they lasted. Now, again, I've said it before. This is why I'm not God. Because I would have been, bing, you're out of here. Moses, we're starting over with you. You and your wife get together, start having some kids because we've got to get back up to a couple million people here and we're going to start this thing over again because these guys just couldn't handle it. Too sinful. And God didn't do that, though, did he? God didn't do that. In fact, just the opposite. He was willing to forgive. And <clears throat> Joel is not just saying... 
God is gracious and merciful. Joel's not just saying things about this. This is what God said about himself. Moses said, I need help. And God says, look, here is the help you need. See me in all of my goodness. This is who I am. I am gracious and merciful. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who God revealed himself to be. So Joel is saying, if God just told you to return to him, then do it. If God just told you to repent, the disaster might be averted. Then listen to what he says. He is a God who has proven himself one who accepts a mournful people, a people that are repentant over their sin and want to come to him. But then in the very next verse, the very next verse, in light of this, this promise that God's going to forgive you and relent, he says, who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, he's just held out God's own words as a promise that if he says repent and return, that's what we should do because that's in keeping with his character. Why is he now seemingly undercutting that? Who knows? What what kind of a thing is that to say when you just told him, do what God says, and now you're saying, well, he may or may not, he may or may not accept this? You have to understand that what Joel is doing here is walking the edge of all true spirituality. A desire to go to God based on his character and yet be humble about it. And yet be humble about it. You see, even in returning to him with repentance over sin, the one thing we cannot do is come with pride in our hearts as if we somehow are owed by God forgiveness and blessing. God doesn't owe us anything. God owes us nothing. So many people get into problems with their understanding of God and the Bible and popular books because there is, a, there, is a, there is an assumption. God owes us love. God owes us forgiveness. God owes us blessing. And the reality that Joel, that Joel is trying to point out here is God doesn't owe us anything. <coughs> I think it was D.A. Carson who was at one time in some graduate studies, rooming with a man from Africa. And the man from Africa was talking about the differences between uh, husbands and wives in African culture. And he was saying very specifically that he had, told, he had been very strict with his wife before he left, that she was not to cheat on him and be unfaithful to him while he was gone. And yet the same breath, he said it was okay if he was unfaithful while he was here studying. And D.A. Carson, already talked with this guy about the Christian faith, said, well, isn't it wrong for you to cheat as well? Isn't that sin? And the man's response in French translated was, some, was fairly close to, God will forgive me, that is his job. Do you see the hubris that's there? Do you, the, you see the arrogance that forgets? God doesn't have to forgive anyone. Every time he does forgive, we are to see it as a gift from his gracious hand. For Israel, that might mean God would forgive them that they might still face the coming judgment for their sins, even though they would remain the people of God, that he would not cut them off forever. For God's people today, looking forward to the final day of the Lord, the outcome is a little different. For the decision of the final day has already been decided. God has promised through his word, spoken through the apostles, written down for our benefit, that for all those who would turn away from their sins and trust in Christ, the judgment of the final day has already been passed. 
It's been passed, sentence has been passed by on Christ while he hung on the cross for us and for our sins. The verdict is in. Forgiven. Justified. Not condemned. That is the grace of God for us in Christ. He has already judged our sins on him. And when we turn to faith, he says, I don't only forgive you, I I count Jesus' righteousness as your own so that you can stand before me on that final day. That judgment that is going to be issued has already been spoken into our hearts of the Spirit who God says he sends to confirm that we indeed have been forgiven and adopted as God's children. Nevertheless, even then, we cannot be prideful about going to God in repentance. You see some guys that strut around on tele- and some girls that strut around on television and act like God owes them things. There, there is an arrogance that says, uh, I, I deserve to never be poor, to never get sick, to never die. I deserve all these things. You even got one guy who supposedly while he's shaving one morning, God appears in the mirror and begins telling him things and he gets into an argument and says, now God, you're going to have to show me that in the Bible. What what arrogance! And yet they're on television all the time. You know, I I find it hard. And here's the kicker. People, people, People give them their money, give them their money, and they get poor giving these people money thinking they're going to get blessed for it. And then when they're not blessed, they're impoverished because they've given all their money away to these quacks. They say, you just don't have enough faith. Really? Let's think about that for a minute. Do you think you've got more faith than the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul's prayers weren't answered. He said, I've got this thorn in the flesh. I've got this thing, likely an illness, and it's hindering me in ministry. God, if he would just take it away from me, I could do so much more. And God says, no, you would get prideful and arrogant. While you are weak, I am shown to be strong. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, okay, God, I can live with that. What about Jesus? You got more faith in Jesus? Of course, we all know Jesus drove around a BMW, right? Oh, no, I'm sorry, was it a Lexus? I, I can't remember. But, but you... you, you you, you know, Jesus was a wealthy guy, right? No, what did he say? Foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have no place to, to lay my head. Jesus. So does Jesus not have enough faith? I hardly think so. Joel cuts through this arrogant spirit when he says, who knows whether or not he, re, he will relent and leave a blessing behind him. What kind of blessing, Joel? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, what kind of blessing is this? I mean, a little bit of wine, a little bit of grain that you're going to take and offer up to the Lord? It seems a little skimpy, doesn't it? Consider what Joel is saying here. He is saying this is the very thing that the people should have longed for. The revival of the daily expressions of temple worship that pointed to their right relationship with God. That's what he's saying. Joel is here putting us and them to the test. What do we want from God? Material blessing? An easy life? Or the ability to worship the Lord with a sense of intimate fellowship? Do we want God or do we want his gifts? Think about that. Do we want God or do we want his gifts? Right answer. We want God. We want God. That is the greatest blessing, Joel says, that could ever be, is to be able to come, even daily, 
knowing that you are part of God's people, that he is willing to accept your worship. It is acceptable in his sight. And it's not, as he will say later in the prophets, a odorous stink that he will reject because it's not offered in faith, because you're living in sin and thinking somehow it's all going to be made better if I just say the right prayer and give the right sacrifice. No, Joel says, what is the greatest blessing of all is knowing that you have a walk with God, that your life is hidden with His in Christ, that you have intimate fellowship with Him, that we are His people and He is our God. Repentance, listen to this, write it down if you need to. Repentance is only genuine. If we go to God because of His mercy and grace alone, not seeking any blessing other than the renewal of our life with God. Did you get that? Repentance is only genuine if we go to God because of His grace and mercy alone, not seeking any other blessing other than the renewal of our life with God. In other words, if we go to God... Sorry for our sins, thinking by confessing God will make things all better. It's not genuine repentance. It's selfishness. It's the, I want the get out of jail free card, God. I, I, I want my troubles to go away, God. And what God says is, no, what you need is me. There may be consequences for your actions. There may be consequences for your sins. But if you have me, none of that matters. None of that matters. And that's what Joel was getting at here. He's saying that when we repent, this is the reality of who we go to before God. We go with contrite hearts and we go with humble faith, looking to and trusting in God. Finally, we repent with right priorities. We repent with right priorities. So far, Joel is speaking to all of God's people in what really is a lot of individual terms. He's telling them to do things that would have been seen as an individual nature. I mean, I can't, I can't go out there and rend your heart before God in repentance. You have to do that, right? By the work of the Spirit. But now he calls for a corporate sign of repentance. By corporate, I mean something that involves the totality of God's people together. Look at verse 15. The prophet says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Now the first thing when you read that you should notice is what? No one's left out, right? No one's left. Gather the people. Which people? He tells us, gather the older people, the elders. Gather the young people, the children, even the, the infants who are still nursing. Gather together, basically then, everyone who is in between. Gather together the whole congregation. That's what he's saying. And the seriousness of the event should not be missed because even those that are on their honeymoon, he says, you need to come out of the bedroom and gather together with the nation. Why is that significant? It's significant for this. Being newly married in Israel was one of the most... Um, exempting things you could possibly have. Every man that was eligible to go to war had to go to war except for the man who was newly married. He had a full year to establish his marriage, his walk with his wife before the Lord before he was due to go up to military service. And what does, what does Joel say here? He says this is not even more important than that. This is not even as important as building the solidarity of marriage. Now that right there should stop and tell you something. Because throughout the Bible, God pictures his relationship to his people as a marriage. And so by implication, what does he do? He calls our marriages to be tight and secure and solid. And so if he is saying, this is even more important than that, 
You better wake up and pay attention. This is serious business. He is saying this great turning back to God by his people is more important than anything else. And friends, again, let's think about this in our life. How often do we go days, weeks, months on end, and except for maybe what we get here on Sundays, by God's grace, maybe even a Wednesday or a community group on Sunday night, do we never go to God in prayer? Do we never humble ourselves before his mighty hand through his word? And we just kind of live our lives as this. Everything else is more important than our walk with him. Sometimes we may even hear, like this morning, we may hear a message. And we may be thinking, oh, this is not for me. This is for that other person sitting over there. I mean, if you're like me, then you have the number in your head. You know how many times, uh, or, well, hopefully it's not so many you've lost count, but, but how many times you've been sitting in a sermon, you're thinking, oh man, I wish that so-and-so was here. The pastor is getting on them today. Woo, doggies, they need to hear this thing. They'd be slapping around and the whole time God's saying, no, it's you. It's you, I'm talking to you. It's your heart that I'm dealing with here. It's your sin that I'm pointing out to you. But we've missed it. We've missed it because we, we think we're okay with God. We've got our priorities in line and these things are more important so we don't have to listen to this message. And Joel is saying, Joel is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't sit comfortably under this word from God to repent. The reality for all of us today is that we all have some sin to, to confess. None of us have achieved the full sanctification because Jesus is when, or Paul says when that happens, it's called something else, glorification. That means you're going to look like Jesus. I, I, sorry, I don't see any of you looking like Jesus, okay? And I say as one who looks at this ugly mug in the mirror every day, and I know I don't look like Jesus, okay? So what does that mean? It means we all have some responsibilities that we have failed to accept. There is immorality that we have embraced, wrong thinking, bad attitudes that we've let shape our life. All of these things need to be exposed in the light of God's holiness. And Joel here is saying, don't take this lightly. Don't take repentance before God to be a light thing. It's been woven into the service kind of informally in various ways, but even before I come to this passage, it, it was made clear to me, we need to be able as the people of God to pause and make this a regular part of our service. And that's why we do that now. Repentance before God is an important time for us to be able to feel the weight of our sin and seek God's forgiveness even together as God's people. Why? Partly because it magnifies His grace. If you knew what your life was going to be like today, do you think God would have, do you think you would have expected God to save you however many years ago it was? Mine was eight. I was eight. And I look back and say, God, boy, if you knew what eight to thirty. What am I, 32? 32 was going to be like, well, why in the world would you save me? And what does that do? It, it, it heightens, it magnifies God's grace and mercy in my life. It caused me to love him all the more. It caused me to want to, 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 to be what I am in Christ, free from sin. To passionately pursue a life with God. Joel goes on to say, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Joel tells the priest, the spiritual leader of the nations, to be at prayer for God's people. Intercede for them, asking the Lord to forgive their sins. But notice why they are praying. In some ways, this is the, the reason why all repentance takes place. Joel says to pray 
that God's people would not become a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Joel says, ultimately, God's people are called to repent. God's people are called to return to God with humble faith, penitent over the rebellion because the glory of God is at stake. One pastor says it well. We as God's people, we are the currency with which God buys credibility in the eyes of the world. The church is the earthly platform on which God displays His saving glory. If we fall into contemptuous ineffectiveness, it casts doubt on the power of our Lord as if He could do nothing but helplessly look on. So when the church is filled with rampant sin and the people who care nothing of loving their king and serving him with their lives, the world looks at us and it laughs at God. When the world laughs at Christians, they're laughing at Christ. So what are we going to do about it? What are they going to do about it when they look at the church and say, Christianity, fairy tale. Just Mythology. Not nothing to be worried about. What are we going to do? We see here when God's people weep over their sin, when they mourn and take seriously the drift away from God, when they seek to return to God and pursue Him with hearts full of love and passion and obedience, the world sits up and takes notice. Because we become the people He wants us to be. We become vessels fit for his service to take his kingdom message to all the nations. When we repent, you see, we not only receive good for ourselves of having our relationship restored with God, but God is also glorified among the nations. It's, our, it's for our good and for his glory. Here in the United States, the name of Jesus Christ is not much better than a swear word or the punchline to an irreverent joke. Though the church looks large and impressive, publishing books, holding conferences, building multi-million dollar facilities that house thousands of people, the reality is we are fairly powerless in light of the culture around us as God's people. And I wonder if it's because this morning we stand at our own Kadesh Barnea. I wonder if we have looked at the call of God in our life, we have looked at the mission He has called us to, And instead of stepping forward on faith, trusting God to be the strength and the power that we need, that He to be the all-satisfying person for our soul, we've taken a step back. And we said, God, I don't know if I trust you that much. I don't think I can give that up. God, I don't think I love you that much because I really like this sin. God, I... You know, some of those places that you tell us to go take the gospel to, they don't like us. They kill us. I don't, I don't think I want this mission. I might get fired from my job. I might lose a friend. If that's truly what has happened to us, then God is going to leave us to wander in the wilderness until our unrepentant hearts die out and he can raise up another generation that will love him and trust him enough to take up the mission and seek to fulfill it to the glory of God. I don't want to be a wandering generation. I don't want to be a 
person that God has to set up on the shelf because he's not fit for God's kingdom service. Too sinful, too dirty, doesn't love God enough. Now he's saved, he'll make it, but God's not going to do much through him. That's not what I want for my life. And I hope that's not what you want for your life. And God says through Joel the same thing He said to Israel, we must repent with hearts that mourn over our sin, seeking the grace and mercy of the God who is compassionate and shows steadfast love to His people. We must repent with a passion to see God known among the nations. We must repent by turning away from soul-killing sin that never satisfies in order to gaze at the Holy One whose glory transforms and satisfies our souls. In Joel 2, just just after this passage, we see God's people respond and they repent. The priests lead them in going back to God. And the Lord says to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will make you. I will make you. No more a reproof among the nations. God was faithful to restore his people back to youth- usefulness. The final day of the Lord is coming, and the question for us is, how will we be found on that day? Will we be found as Christians who are just happy to have made it, or will we be found as Christians who are faithful in pursuing God to the very end of our lives? That's the question for us this morning, and the answer is clear. If we want to be the kind of people that God can use in mighty and dramatic ways for His glory, not ours, to spread His kingdom, not ours, then it starts by humbling ourselves, being broken over our sin and getting our lives right with God by repentance. Trusting not in our own good morality to make God love us, but trusting only in the offering of Jesus Christ for our sins. What we need to do is go before a holy God and be transformed in His presence. Father, as we come before You this morning, we know that. Father, there are some here that have walked with You for years for decades. Father, they are truly holy people before you. But God, we also know that just by just by the tenor of the life of the church in this country, Father, we have grown soft and weak because of the blessings we have had. We have taken confidence in our money and in our programs and not in the power of the gospel to change lives. Father, I pray this morning that we would repent of those things and so much more individually. Father, many of us this morning will feel a weight like a boot on our chest. And God, that's good because I know that is your spirit convicting us. And Father, if your spirit is convicting us, it means that you are at work in our lives, drawing us back to you. So Father, I pray that we would embrace that feeling of the weightiness of our sin. And yet, Father, we would also be free of it by turning in faith to Christ, the one who died for our sins to give us a clear conscience before you. Father, help us never to trust in our own goodness as a means for you to love us. But Father, help us always to desire holiness. Help us always to desire to live for you. Help us always to desire to magnify the name of Christ. 
because you have already demonstrated your love in our lives at Calvary.